0: I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my Thoughts on Money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. I'm Trevor Cummings, your host of the podcast and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. I'm here with my good friend and my basketball colleague, Mr. Sean Latimer.
1: You have to like think of something new every time, huh? I have that to. That threw you off, yeah.
0: Well, I, last thing I remembered was uh, about 30 minutes ago being on the basketball court <laughs> with you. true. Hello,
1: everyone. Happy to be here.
0: So we're talking about an article today I wrote called The index card, and I'm not talking about the three by five card you put your notes on for your college test. I am talking about the Trump card investors like to throw when they're in debates about the best style of investing. Started the article out and I said, You probably have a friend like this. The one that always plays the devil's advocate, always has a little factoid or tidbit they want to drop um, and kind of challenge you. Sean's going to interrupt me and say that
1: I'm that guy, so go ahead and make the joke. He totally is. You can be pretty confident in a subject or a category where you know like 90% of it and you're, and he'll say, oh, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more, and he kind of lures you into his trap and then you say everything you know and then he goes, but isn't it this or isn't it that? Or well, he's not necessarily challenging you, but he's definitely questioning you. So yes, that's Trevor. So I am that friend.
0: What I talked about in the article, though, is when it comes to investing, there is a pet peeve I have where people hear what we do and how we approach investing, um, and then they do exactly what I do to you. Uh, They they throw out, oh, you know, I read a research paper, or, you know, I I, I know this statistic, and what I call it is I say they drop the index card. They basically say is that everybody should index. Mm -hmm. That is the premier strategy that they would argue. And they would say, hey, I can show you tons of studies, which I'm going to start out right now. I agree with the studies that most active managers will struggle to beat the index. Yeah. And the other studies that show there is a high correlation between cost and performance of those funds. If you stop there, you've just turned yourself into an index zealot. What I want to challenge you to do is take it one step further. Why
1: would that be true? And we should add a little bit of context, too, because...
0: Add context away, my friend. The, this,
1: this happens in different types of levels. Because, because of what we do for a living, everyone loves to talk stocks and talk shop, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, you could be at like a kid's birthday party, and it comes into like, oh, what do you do? What type of investments? And then I, I feel like I get all different types of answers. Like, oh, I beat the market every year, the last 20 years. And I'm thinking, good job, grandpa. Like, whoever this guy is, I don't really care. Great job. And then I hear, oh... You know, like, oh, it's a weird industry to be in. Do you guys index? Do you guys do this? Do you own tech stocks? Do you have this? And it, I feel like the conversation can go like one of 10 ways. But for this topic today, you're right. If you read those topics and they said, hey, you're going to pay an active manager to try and beat the index, and there's all these studies that show that they don't, why would you ever own it? Or why would you pay someone to do it that's not going to beat the index?
0: And you're right. It's like a niche conversation. Why it's a pet peeve for me is I should have put a link. I had this Twitter debate. It was respectful. I really appreciated kind of the feedback the person gave me. But this person is well known, uh, a leader of a group we call the Bogleheads. These people that really elevate John Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, who was an amazing person, belongs on the Mount Rushmore of personal finance, but advocates for indexing and He can be a little bit of a bully
1: online. Trevor was trying to get some Twitter clout. Like challenging yeah, the bogleheads. <laughs> I do not have
0: a, I don't have followers or anything. i I, I use this as a launch point for reading, but uh, I challenged him a little bit because he really pushed towards, you know, this is a superior way of investing and kind of this argument. and like I said, he postures himself in a little bit of a bully fashion that if you are taking the other side, you're you're basically an idiot. Mm-hmm. And what I did is I went on his website and I peeled back how he actually invests for clients. and I was saying, Hey, I want to challenge you. You're not an indexer, right? And he's like, "Wait, wait, wait! H- how could you say that? Indexing, by its like true definition, would be essentially... and again, there's not a true definition because it's a kind of obscure. But I think it would be, and this is what John Bogle would advocate for: that you would own one fund that essentially, in your view, represented the market. In our conversations, we often use the S and P 500.
1: Does that So do, when you hear indexing, and this is more just conversation because we could argue both sides, do you automatically think that means they're 100% in equities? Or do you just think it means that they are like completely passive in like a 60-40 type of balanced fund?
0: Great question. So I don't really have a strong opinion of the difference between stock and bonds, right? If you want to use S&P 500 for your stock allocation and then the aggregate bond index for your bond allocation, fair enough. I Actually, you've never seen that. I mean, <laughs> and i and i said this in the article for all the conversations we have i have never met one what i would define as pure indexer
1: well and the funny part is when you have someone that says they are and we've laughed about this before and you look at the statements and you go what about this uh you know this gold ETF over here what about this what about that they go oh i read some article and i thought i'd sprinkle i thought i had really good timing and i had a good entry point oh weird
0: exactly so the the person that i'm talking to, uh, about is like kind of the leader of the front, and I'm saying, hey, I went on your website, and I look at it, and you use these exchange-traded funds, or even mutual funds, whatever it is, and they're all labeled index funds because they're following some index, but your own active opinions are completely apparent, right? You're leaning towards like smaller capitalization companies, or you're skewing towards value-oriented companies. So the counter-argument is like, well, I'm passive, because I'm using low passive, cost, in, yeah, low-cost passive index yeah. funds, and I'm like, but wait a tick. Like we know how important asset allocation is, and you've created a completely active asset allocation.
1: So I guess like the way to do it is you use some sort of like all-world ETF that's equally weighted to every sector to everywhere, and that would be the true passive index fund. I don't know. I, because, I don't know either.
0: Because I've heard a great conversation is saying, okay. We can't really define indexing. So for John Bogle, it really was the S&P 500. Mm-hmm. We, we, we'll mention later Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett, uh, constant advice about just buying the S&P 500. So if you were asking me, for all the people that are following the folks that were kind of first to the game of saying it, I, I think the pure index with the S- S&P 500 for stocks. But I've heard great conversations with... We're like, hey, if you look at the market, how big the bond market is, how big the stock market is, how big the real estate market is, if you're really just trying to copy, quote unquote, the market, you would follow the dollar capitalization of everything. So it becomes a slippery slope. Yeah. But it takes me back to that same place of like timeout. Your original argument was based on these studies. So why is it – and this is where the question is not being asked. Why is it that a majority of these folks were having trouble – outperforming the index that's the question that's never asked and one of the things i mentioned in the article is who are these active managers they're real people mm-hmm. with real mortgages yep with real families that really don't want to lose their jobs so there's actually a metric in the industry called tracking air that looks if you're an active manager how far do you track differently from your chosen index s&p 500 what might not what, what it might be There's a huge risk if you want to take on tracking error right? because investors are extremely impatient. right? So what have you done for me lately? They're not going to allow you to have high tracking error unless it's high tracking error to their benefit. Of course. If it's a year like 2022 and your strategy uh, is doing quite well while the general markets are struggling, hey, we love you. Uh, For this year. For this year. (laughs) And that's what I pointed out about Mr. Buffett in 2020 his actively managed strategy trailed the index S&P 500 by 1600 basis points. Yeah. That's 16%. Investors are not patient. That's when Warren Buffett finds himself on the cover of a magazine saying his approach, his strategy, his philosophy is
1: dead. He's a dinosaur. He's a dinosaur he forgot it's how old to invest. school. Yep.
0: Exactly. Now, we're talking about 2020, 2022, he's outperforming the index so as as of this writing Twenty one hundred basis points, twenty one percent. So, what does that mean? It means that he's an active manager with heavy convictions that lead him to a portfolio that looks very different than "quote unquote" the market.
1: Yeah. Two two thoughts I have when you are talking about portfolio managers that um, get accused of hugging indexes, and it, the first one is the obvious one that if you are like within the same realm of a few you know percentage points, you could probably make the argument that you know this one wrong or that one wrong, but it was close enough that people probably aren't going to notice or hold your feet to the fire. But the only real way to beat benchmarks is to have either heavier concentration in certain positions or to kind of be a contrarian almost. That's how you would beat the index. But the problem is if you're wrong, then you're going to stand out. And that, that's how you're talking about that person doesn't want to stand out and lose their job.
0: Yeah. And that makes the, the studies almost like you should take, you, what you should do is a human study. Yeah. Right? Because the results don't actually matter. If we just said, hey, let's take a group of people that all own the same stuff. And some of them cost more and some of them cost less. I can do that math for you. The ones that cost more are going <laughs> to underperform. I can make the list for you very easily. It's not so dissimilar. I'm not as big of a football fan as you. But you hear these articles that, you know, float up on ESPN every once in a while, like this high school coach in arkansas kansas like he never punts always goes for it on fourth down and always uh does the two point conversion
1: it's all the analytics yeah exactly (laughs) all the analytics
0: but guess what not one coach in the nfl regardless of the analytics today could be changed the future but not one of them today is willing to take career risk they're not going to look different um they're not going to suffer through that i'm a basketball fan we watched one of uh the most interesting approaches to building a new team in the 76ers, mm. they tanked multiple years in a row. They might have been like the namesake for tanking and a lot of the rules changing. Sam Hinkey was kind of the thought behind that. Guess what? The 76ers got really good the year after Sam Hinkey left because he did all that work of tanking, but people aren't patient. Nope. They weren't willing to, as they say in that city, quote unquote,
1: trust the process. That's the hard part, and you brought up basketball. It reminds me of the Houston Rockets where you know the analytics were, hey, we're going to shoot a lot of threes, and we're going to let James Harden shoot all the threes. And it worked for a while, but then it's probably not a sustainable process, and that's why they didn't win a championship.
0: Yeah, anytime, like you said, whether you want to use the word contrarian, anytime you're skewing away from the herd, man, critics will come out of the woodwork, and you will not be given a long leash.
1: No, they're licking their chops. They're like waiting for it. Well, all right, we'll see. I can't wait.
0: Yet Uncle Warren, Mr. Warren Buffett, every year he writes a letter to investors. On the first page of that letter, he publishes his results over the last 50 years or however long it's been. And I think the S&P 500 compounded at 10% annually, and he's something like 20%. He's happy to put his benchmark right there, happy to keep his convictions. But guess what? He doesn't manage a mutual fund. He manages a holding company that's traded on the stock exchange where he's a gigantic owner. He has skin in the game. Mm -hmm. It is very different, and it allows him a lot of freedoms to not pander to his audience or the investors and really stick to his convictions. He often says that what makes a great investor is not IQ. It's temperament, and that guy, the most amazing thing about him, he doesn't care what you think. He doesn't care what you put on the front of the New York Times. He doesn't care what you put on Business Week. He is going to continue to invest the way that he believes is prudent.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned earlier that his advice is often for people to be index investors. But it it makes sense, though, because I can name lots of times that you and I have done the same thing where if we don't know the person's circumstances or their investment experience, The most important part is them just getting exposure to the market in some sort of capacity. And so if I was giving broad advice to a lot of people that didn't know, I would say the same thing.
0: Yeah, it is an easy way to get exposure and you're 100% right. If you wanted to make the list of three or four things for a newer investor that matters a lot, it's to get invested, to stay invested, and to add money and let compounding do its work. So I agree with you there. I did call that section Warren Buffett's bad advice or Buffett's bad advice. What Sean and I are talking about is if you get Buffett on TV or an interview, you've read the article, consistently, he is saying, hey, what should investors do? They should buy the S&P 500. The reason I don't like that is, again, we'll use this Mount Rushmore thing again. Buffett is on the Mount Rushmore of active management. Mm -hmm. He's one of the best active managers of all time. So for him to advocate that the average investor be passive – I'm okay with that if it's the argument that, hey, you need to shield yourself from index huggers and folks that are just trying to trim commission off you or, or what it might be. But in whatever year it was, 1995 or 1996, Buffett's Holding Company came out with B shares specifically to make it more accessible to investors. Right. I don't remember what A shares are right now for one single share, but hundreds of thousands yeah. of dollars. And this is before you could purchase partial shares. So I don't know, for me, I I hate when people say like, what's this, how do you say it? Do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. So for me, for somebody that's had such great success that manages a portfolio that's accessible to investors, I don't know. I I don't know why the advice would be, hey, don't do what I do.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna defend him because if he's on TV, he he wants to give an answer. Because think about it, if he said the other way, that, oh, I believe back to management superior, the most follow-up question. Great, which fund? You gonna hom- buy my fund? <laughs> Let's- yeah, why not? I don't His own know.
0: holding company. Yeah, I guess. I mean, David Monson's on TV every day. He's not saying, "Oh, you know, like lots of different ways to invest." So, you know, Stuart Varney or whoever he's talking to, you know, I could understand that if you go out and buy these shiny things or whatever. No, he's got conviction. He's saying, "Hey, here's the way I invest." Yes, there's a lot of different ways to invest, but what I'm saying is the way that that man has accumulated wealth is through a very what I'm going to call prudent strategy that doesn't look like the market. That is true. And if you look at the top 10 companies that represent something like the S&P 500, that also make up a huge part of the S&P 500, he doesn't own a lot of those. Granted, he owns the biggest company in the world, and that's the biggest allocation in his portfolio. But if you go down that top 10, you can notch a bunch of things that are not significant allocations in his portfolio.
1: You know what else is interesting too, and I feel for portfolio managers for big asset management companies that manage a lot of money is- at some, it is sometimes probably difficult for them to be a contrarian because the, if they choose a one-off position, they're moving the market with the amount of money that they trade. So they almost can't do it. They may have a mandate based off shareholders or something like that. It's interesting to learn more about.
0: Yeah. I mean, size is the enemy of performance mm-hmm. and that's argument against Buffett. But I don't know what his portfolio looks like, but something like 40%, I'd say north of 30%, is the largest company in the world. Uh, So he he obviously did the analysis, saw value there, and made that purchase and had conviction. The main thing I'm saying is that if the S&P 500 gives you a list of 500 companies, he can use that list to say, hey, this fits the style of investing I like, things at a reasonable price that are great companies. And I'll kind of bring us home- I also say this is an extremely convenient argument, is it not? Mm -hmm. Because if you're in this industry as an advisor and you know, hey, there's two hats I need to wear, or there's really two service offerings I need to bring to the table, financial planning and investment management. If you go down the path of being an index evangelist, you get to opt out of investment management.
1: Right. I thought that was an interesting point where for years, people clients and financial services were underserved because they would pay a broker or someone to get them access. And there was definitely no, not real financial planning happening where things weren't organized, no estate planning, no overall tax planning. But now I feel like our industry has like found that niche and said, oh, wow, this is a need that people aren't getting. I'm not going to worry about the investment management side because I have all this data that will, that will back up indexing. I'm going to dive in deep to the planning but it's almost gotten to the point where it's becoming a disservice for people, where they think that investment management doesn't matter at all.
0: Yeah, and they, it, it becomes so much about marketing, right? It's kind of like what you're defining there and what we talked about in the article here is like the evolution of the advisor from broker to planner, Yeah. right? And in that evolution, throw the baby out with the bathwater, there was kind of like a, a rejection of this intellectual desire to explain markets, understand markets, understand how investment management worked. And what I talked about in the article is what most planners did is they wanted to find a turnkey solution. Mm -hmm. And for me, this was funny. So much so that there's a well-known program in the industry called a TAMP, a turnkey asset management program. When do people turn to something that's turnkey? When it's burdensome. Yeah. right like we don't change our own oil or maybe we go to a car wash because at some level that feels like a burden and we want to resource somebody outside to take care of that so now you have this population of planners who I respect highly but they've outsourced the investment management to where they they don't even have some of the vocabulary or I don't want to use the word intellect because these are the very people. intelligent yeah, people. Yeah. But they, do, um,
1: they just don't dedicate the resources and the time and the effort to that.
0: Exactly. And it's, it, they've convinced themselves. They said, no, 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 no. Indexing is superior. Therefore, I can put all my focus here. And here's my criticism to them. And this is the marketing part. There are some, here's reality, right? If you meet with somebody, is there an unlimited list of planning items you could do? There's not. So, really, their tool belt is somewhat limited. So I find that they take some of these tools and they overpromote them. them. Yeah. Tax-loss harvesting, we do it every year. We just did it. I love it. It's huge. It's not impact- as impactful as planners let it out to be.
1: Especially as the years go by.
0: Yeah, because what are you doing? You're, you're really kicking the can down the road. Yeah. But there's entire like robo-advisor solutions that basically say, man, we do tax-loss harvesting and we create tax alpha and, and all these things. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not convinced. I think an advisor n- needs to do that. I don't think it was smart for the broker to reject planning to focus on investment management. Right. But I also don't think it's wise that the planner rejects investment management. I think the client should expect both.
1: Well, that's the hard part too is the appetite of the consumer or the client has changed too. When you come off 11, 12 years of you know index investing doing really well and then they hear this story – from someone who's probably our age, so their whole their whole ex- experience in our industry has been outperforming benchmarks through indexing. It's a really easy story to sell s- someone, you know?
0: Yeah, and you're exactly right. And that's what makes even the crypto conversation difficult. You have something that, like David Bonson, that will never forget the beginning of his career and what happened in the tech bubble. And he's like, hey, history might not repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. And everything we're seeing in crypto reminded him a lot of mm-hmm. what he saw in the tech bubble. But when you know Greenspan came out and said this idea of irrational exuberance, that was, I don't know what year, but something like 1997. So the market still had like two or three years of just ripping. Um, so that is where it can be embarrassing to be contrarian, right? Because you have to have those convictions to stay the course. For a Warren Buffett in 2020, he's compensated in 2022 and not everybody's that patient. Well said. Sean wants to wrap it up. We both have uh, client calls coming up. So I don't think I have a ton to add there. The one little thing I was going to say as we kind of visually present this idea of investment management and financial planning, Sean and I used to work in another life in another industry, and one of our leaders, I love what he used to say. He said, it's not this or that, it's this and that. Mm -hmm. And that is my encouragement to investors, is I think you should dive deep into all the particulars on both the planning side and the investment management side, um, and have a deep understanding of the rhyme or reason of why you do what you do inside the plan or inside the portfolio. At this point, like every podcast, we will ask that you rate the podcast. Five stars are preferred. All comments are welcome. A really easy way to get a hold of Sean or me is you can write T-O-M, that's Tom, at thebonsigroup.com. Address it to Sean or Trevor. All your questions, comments, or if you want to tell us about that friend that you have uh, (laughs) that is exactly like me, Trevor Cummings, uh, we would love to hear it. So with that said, we will be back next week with more of our thoughts on money.